MuggleCast is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. GoDaddy hosting plans are now more powerful than ever. Best of all, plans start at just $3.95 a month. And no matter what plan you choose, your site receives 24-7 maintenance and protection in the GoDaddy.com world-class data center. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code MUGGLE, that's M-U-G-G-L-E, when you check out, and save an additional 10% on any order. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash MuggleCast. Hello, this is David Heyman, and I'm the producer of the Harry Potter films, and this is MuggleCast. Because Micah has it in for the Hufflepuffs, this is MuggleCast episode 212 for November 1st, 2010. Welcome everyone, MuggleCast episode 212. Eric, Micah, and me are here this week to tell you about Harry Potter. What's going on in the wizarding world? There's obviously a lot going on with the movie just a couple weeks away, and uh, we're here to give you our thoughts in a timely, efficient, and hopefully humorous manner. Who's that, Andrew? Eric, actually, I have a bone to pick. Well, since it is uh, technically our Halloween episode, we should probably mention your Halloween costume this year. Oh, no. It... I think it stole the show. If, if anyone's friends with Eric on Facebook, I mean, who isn't really? You'll see a whole album of, of photos of Eric dressed up as a Hogwarts student. Yeah. A female Hogwarts student. Pansy Parkinson. Complete with a corsage. Corset. Corset. <laughs> <laughs> a corsage. Is, is a corsage a flower? Flowers, yeah. Um, it's, yes. it's, it's a corset. And, yeah, it's it's Pansy Parkinson was the, uh, was the objective there. Ah, well, you make a great pansy. Well, thank you. Yes, I was kind of weirded out by it. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do a female Hogwarts student. But you were at a a Harry Potter meetup group, so that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a, a Halloween Harry Potter themed Halloween party. But uh, I think my mom must have seen those pictures because I haven't heard from her, um, you know, in a few days. Mm. So I, I don't know what what the deal is. But uh, but yeah, that's um that album is public on Facebook. So your that's, mom's on Facebook. Yeah, my mom's on Facebook. Oh, my mom's on Facebook. I was disappointed. I didn't get a chance to uh, to meet her in Orlando. Yeah, that was upsetting. She was there. That's kind of weird too that you wouldn't want to do that. But anyway, <laughs> let's get into some. Uh, let's get the show started. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. <laughs> and I'm Micah Tannenbaum.
Mike and Tannenbaum, before you set up uh, your date with Eric's mother, I want you let us know what's going on in the in the news. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Andrew, there's a lot going on. We're just weeks away from Deathly Hallows Part 1. And uh, Warner Brothers has been just churning that PR machine, and they released what I call an endless supply of TV spots. And uh, we've all seen them. I'm sure most of our listeners have seen them by this point. And I really want to know, are they revealing too much of this film? <laughs> Stop. Eric, Listen, can you on. recreate the film frame by frame yes. now with what you've seen having gone to yes. the uh, the preview or the yes. screening? You, you probably can sit down on your computer, load up some program, and just go and, and piece all these different TV spots and trailers together. And you don't even have to pay the money to go to the movie right. theater. And here's why. Here's why you can do that. The only thing that they haven't released in TV spots are the transitory dead silence moments where characters are walking from one place to another or the cameras, you know, moving from one thing to another. Those are the only things that you'll need to I mean that that's worth the price of a movie ticket to see those, you know, intermediary scenes. But if you're if you're if you're the kind of moviegoer who just wants the the dialogue, all the dialogue that's in the film is in these TV spots. Absolutely, 100%. I completely disagree with that. Most of the TV spots have a lot of the same clips. They share a lot of the same clips. I think the TV spots were very good in that they didn't show too much because they are so repetitive. They're, and they picked out some pretty funny moments. Um, I guess there was a nice balance of, of funny and dark stuff. We got a couple new looks at Dobby, which was really nice. We got, we, we do have a lot of seven potters footage. I will say okay, that. Yeah. I, I mean, that's my point too. Like, a couple of shots of Dobby. Well, how many shots do you think there are in the film of Dobby? Because <laughs> I think I wrote down yeah. months and months ago when we saw the film, uh, not much of Dobby. It's 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 more than than there has been for sure. But I, you look at a different couple of different camera angles, and that's all that Dobby's in the film. And Seven Potters, especially, that's the TV spot I watched with uh, Dan Radcliffe in a bra as 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 Floor. Or whatever, like I can't right. believe that they showed that. That's ridiculous because it's such a a good thing to see in the movie. When you know they just shouldn't have revealed that. That's that you can just go on YouTube, search it now, and see it. It it detracts from the movie experience. Is that what inspired you to dress up as a woman for Halloween? Yeah, I said I saw Dan do it, and I said I could do it better, and uh, then I did. You and him do musicals. You dress up as women together. You do everything together. We're gonna do like a one man play. Um, actually, a two man play. But uh, we're going to, like, be opposites of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Look for that um, on the West End in uh, 2012. Doesn't sound appealing to me. Uh, Michael, <laughs> what else is going on in the news? Well, I wanted to touch on something that you guys said was the, the humorous side of it. Do you think they're painting this film as, as being a little bit too funny? I mean, they yeah. had a lot of comedy in Half-Blood Prince. But with Deathly Hallows Part 1... I think this is supposed to be a little bit more serious. And, and we've seen a number of different bits of comedy. You mentioned the Seven Potters. There's a couple lines from Mad-Eye Moody. There's a couple lines from Dobby. There's a couple lines, you know, from George. So uh, is it a little bit too funny? I, I mean, this is supposed to be the finale of the films. It's supposed to be the darkest film yet as we progress. Well, That's always the line that we hear. Are you? Are, do you think maybe they were afraid if they didn't show a little bit of the lighter side, people might not be as interested? Maybe not the average Harry Potter fan or average moviegoer wouldn't be interested as much? 
I think so, because that's what they do. If you see any movie trailer, any commercial, there's always some funny bits, whether it's a com, usually if it's a, if it's a comedy film, but for a fantasy film like Harry Potter, they also, you know, they try to bring the lulls. Eric, does, would you say the film brings some lulls other than the Seven Potter stuff? I mean, that seems pretty apparent. Wait, the film or the trailer? No, the film overall. No. Since you have seen it. No, I'm... It's not... It doesn't bring the lulls. It doesn't bring the lulls. Um, I mean, okay, there are very few scenes such as um, when the trio transforms into the, the ministry officials. That sort of thing is, is funny. But um, I'm actually surprised that they found this many humorous moments, dialogue, and all of that for these TV spots because the film is not uh, funny. It's not as funny as the past films have been and i i like it for that reason but um i, I yeah I'm, I'm i think it it's it has to do with what the audience uh expects because you can't make this trailer with this exciting music if 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 there's like a dramatic scene and very few trailers even of drama films are going to show just drama scenes they're going to show heartwarming you know s- s- things of, of of drama and relationships and characters interacting because that's what trailers do do the tv spots make you want to see the film what? they make me feel like I, <laughs> that's they a make, hard that's they a hard make question. me feel like i've seen it <laughs> although i also have seen it so i can't answer that <laughs> let's move on okay. i mean this, this yeah. happens with every but film i agree okay. with that micah i agree with everything yeah. you said well thank you eric uh but Mike is never satisfied. <laughs> no, I am. I, I, look, I, I, I'm i playing devil's advocate here. If there's too little, we hear the complaints. If there's too much, we hear the complaints. At least there's not a million pictures this time, okay? Yeah. They've limited least, that. Wow. They're doing something right. Before we move on, we'd like to remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. The Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of MuggleCast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is The Hunger Games, a thrilling young adult novel that's actually part of a great trilogy. Nearly all the hosts of MuggleCast have read it, and we all really highly recommend it. So for a free audiobook of your choice, such as The Hunger Games, go to audiblepodcast.com slash MuggleCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash MuggleCast. Well, we did get some samples from uh, the Deathly Hallows Part 1 soundtrack, and uh, Andrew, I know you have some of those queued up. We wanted to talk about this. Uh, they were released on uh, Amazon.uk, Co.uk, yeah. Co.uk. Co, sorry, left out the co. Um, but you can always go to MuggleNet and just click the link. Uh, that wasn't a shameless <laughs> plug or anything. If you're URL but impaired. First of all, I guess, let's play them, and then we'll kind of give our overall thoughts. Well, okay, so well, which ones do you want to listen to? Well, what are the uh, ones we don't that have to you play said, them all. okay, in the news post among them that you were like, we strongly think that these few oh, are yeah. of importance. Okay, well, here's here's one. Uh, this is Farewell to Dobby. This is, of course, when uh, Dobby dies. You'll be hearing this. It's very sad. Makes me want to cry. So it's very, it's very slow. I think it's very, it'll be very moving when that's matched we'll up. Play, you know, compare Harry that to Dobby, bearing. just just the one titled Dobby. Can you? Play okay, it? and here's Dobby when he's alive. This is what it'll sound like. It's kind of um, 
what what's the word? Um, Hooper-ish. Quirky. Bouncy. <laughs> Bouncy. I think it fits Dobby well. Do you guys? Would you guys agree? Yeah. I love this. This is going to be. I think this is the standout new theme. Is going to be Dobby. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Some others I thought were good. Snape to Malfoy Manor. This is very. This is a very large, very large sound. got an epic and eerie feel to it. Do you guys like that one? Yeah, it, it, that's at the beginning of the movie, too. It sounds yeah. like it's it, it's at the beginning. You know, you, you it, Well, there is one track feeling. before it. Oh, is there? Okay. The one track before it is Oblivion. Yeah, I don't this, think these are this, in order, though. Like... No, they are. No, they're in a sensible order, but track 18 is Hermione's parents, and, you know, that's at the beginning of the film. Oh, that's true. Well, maybe... So... Well, Obliviate is at the beginning, and Hermione obliviates her parents' mind, right? Oh, so right, right, right. So that's I where wonder, that fits in, right? I wonder where the deal is Maybe then. Hermione's... Maybe Hermione's parents, the song Hermione's parents is when Hermione's talking about her parents. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Here, how about... um. We have two Ron ones. This first one is Ron Leaves. It's actually more sad than when Dobby dies, I think. <laughs> <laughs> this must be what's going on in Hermione's head. <laughs> it's actually one of the saddest things I've ever heard. And then there's Ron's speech later on. Sort of inspiring, sort of like, ah, okay, things will get better. I would assume it's sort of a part two to Ron Leaves, because Ron's speech would be when he returns, of course. Oh, and then... How about destroying the locket? Destroying the locket, okay. This is right before Ron's speech. This must be when he's thinking of doing it or something. So that's okay. Uh, some people were saying in the MuggleNet comments that the these samples, uh, or the the soundtrack overall, it doesn't have as whimsical of a feel, I guess you would say, compared to the other Harry Potter films, especially John Williams' work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's what the, the first tweet there says from Peculiar oh, really? Ways. I'm not hearing the John Williams original themes that Desplat said he would incorporate. Probably too early to say, but this is a darker film. You know, yeah, th- these, this is hear- it. This is the final battle, essentially. This final piece of the of the franchise. It's not supposed to be happy-go-lucky whimsical. You know, It's supposed to be dark. I listened to the first... 10 or so samples of this score and one of the things that struck me immediately was the use of the instruments and it just seems like this plat like really commands the use of instruments to create different emotions but what also struck me was that none of the instruments stood out as being 
a character. Like John Williams' film, the score is a character. You know, when when and, and things on screen, such as Owl's landing on Privet Drive, are sort of the 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 background to what is playing as far as music goes. Well, you know, now we we progress to where these movies are actually films. You know, cinematic uh, pieces pieces of art. And uh, the music is simply supplementing what is actually going on in the, in the, in the scene. I, I think it's just an evolution. It doesn't. It's way too early to say, "Oh, you know, he didn't he didn't incorporate any John Williams like he said he would." Like that. That's a little too early, I feel, because uh, Des Platt. Like I believe Des Platt when he said he really well, wanted to get back to basics. And Hedwig's theme will be in there, but it it doesn't make sense to have a sample of that because we've all heard it a million times over already anyway but yeah and 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 these are 30 second samples there's a lot more to each of these songs i mean some of these songs are up to six minutes long so the final track is the elder wand which of course would suggest what we've already been reporting that the movie will be split when voldemort takes control of the elder wand so just to wrap up this news bit let's let's listen to uh the elder wand This is the music that... I feel like I'm... Yeah, what? I feel, I feel like this is like out of uh, Survivor, the reality show. <laughs> this is where everybody in the audience is wondering why Dumbledore's grave tombstone came from Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> like, but isn't that... Uh, how's it... Okay. That, so that was the little sample. Yeah. It's only the, the entire uh, song... Uh, Elder, the Elder Wand is a minute and a half. So that was the third oh. of it, right there. Can you play? Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, saw you, I know you said that was the last one, but can you play the one called "The Deathly Hallows"? I'm pretty sure that's going to be playing during the Three Brothers scene. Absolutely. Mugglecast Live coming up next. The Deathly Hallows. <laughs> Hallows. You still can't say it right. Hallows. Backstory. The third brother. Yeah, I, I yeah, can definitely definitely see Hermione doing a voiceover to that. You know, reading the tale of the three brothers. The third brother greeted death as an old friend, and together they crossed into the abyss. All right, just a just a couple more tweets because we did ask people uh, with this limited uh, bit of music to rate Alexander Desplat. And uh, Crest of Waves said, I ranked Desplat an 8.5 for being consistent but imaginative. Jimmy Jex says, On Desplat, the excitement and magic in Sky Battle is great. The hopeful uncertainty in the burrow is wondrous. Dobby equals fun. 9 out of 10. And uh, What the Grace, I rated Desplat 9 out of 10. He's the reason why I started listening to movie scores after New Moon and Benjamin Button. The rest was history. Yeah, his scores are good. Uh, one other one he did was recently was uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think that's the name oh, of it. Yeah, and uh, that one's really good. I've I've heard a, I haven't seen the movie. I actually have it waiting for me, but uh, this the I've heard some samples from the soundtrack, and it's good. And he, you know, he really cares. He's I think he's a good composer. So look forward to seeing his score. What what else is going on in the news? All Michael? right, Eric alluded to this before, and we do have a runtime for the film uh, it's a little bit conflicting depending on where you read it IMAX was reporting uh, I think it was uh, 147 147 
And then uh, the BBFC was reporting right around 145. So that's not that drastic of a difference. The movie's <laughs> going to be somewhere in that range. <laughs> the, the, uh, the... But regardless, regardless, <laughs> it does make it the third shortest film. Whether it's 145 or 147, uh, or somewhere in between, the third shortest film to date. The, the, yeah, yeah I wrote the headline like that to get people talking <laughs> because, You're you know. You're a smart businessman, Andrew. <laughs> like, with, with the final, I think especially the final film, um, I don't know. Well, maybe come, come to think of it, I take that back. I was going to say that the final film needs to be the longest, but really it, it doesn't. I mean, if they're going to, there, there's no point really to make it the longest. I was just sort of saying that just to stir, yeah, stir you're up stirring points. it up. Like I read, okay, so I read that and on on MuggleNet, and I was like, oh, okay, 147 minutes. That sounds amazing. And then you said, oh, it's the third shortest film ever. Third shortest. And then I was like, second yeah. guessing my initial uh, appraisal of it. I was like, well, wait a minute, it's the third shortest. Now, how do I feel about it? Oh crap. Oh, so Andrew it, got me it, thinking. It puts it just shy of two and a half hours. So. But that's two and a half hours. Of it's camping. two and a half hours. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's a long not time. Terrible. I mean, that that's pretty long. So it, it, I think we should just be happy with it and move on and expect that part two will be longer. I mean, I would hope that with everything that they have to do, the loose ends they have to tie up, that we were promised that a majority of that film is going to be the battle, and a good portion of it is going to be the battle. That we should just be happy with this, and I'm sure it'll be fine. This next news item, I don't really know that much about. It says that the uh, the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, added sensuality uh, as to why it, the movie here in the United States received a PG-13 rating. And supposedly our site made a big deal about this. Andrew. Well, you know, I, I've lately I've been in the mood to write some uh, link bait news posts. No, I'm kidding. It, the, the the thing is, I, it was interesting because we've talked a lot about the MPAA here on MuggleCast. Mm-hmm. One of our listeners even recommended um, that I watch um, a documentary on the MPAA. This film it, is not yet rated? Right. Great documentary. It really exposes them. But anyway, so they issued, you know, the, the PG-13 rating a couple of weeks ago, and then just the other day, they... They revised their rating. <laughs> they they added that the fu- film includes a, a a moment of brief sensuality. Yeah, and this is this is and is it that big of a deal? No, this is the text that you see at the bottom of the green screen in the trailer before the trailer begins. This is what you see. You know, rated PG thirteen. Actually, technically, no. That's the rating for the trailer itself, not the film. You see that at the end. Sorry. Oh well. Yeah, uh, fun, fun movie. I, I, I still, I still feel as though this text will not appear anywhere significant, and that the <laughs> changing of this text—correct me if I'm wrong—but the changing of this text is almost to to avoid some kind of lawsuit. I, I don't understand why it was changed, and I don't understand. Yeah, it's just. Yeah. It's just weird that they added it two weeks after the fact. Like, why didn't they catch this the first time? I think the so British that... are just so much better. They don't sugarcoat anything. They give it to you right <laughs> as it is. You know, they rated the film a 12A for their own reasons. And, of course, that's a <laughs> they PG. They didn't mention sensuality. 13 equivalent. Yeah, no. sensuality. I mean, that's a bunch of fluff as far as I'm concerned. Their, 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 their description of Deathly Hallows, the, the BBFC, is even worse. It says, moderate fantasy violence and threat. Moderate? 
what what is what is extreme fantasy violence and threat? But they're British. Sound like? Eric, they're British. They 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 have to make it sound nice, you know, that that's what they do. Oh yeah, it's moderate little All right. little trepidation on the fantasy violence. Look, when you have a snake eat somebody within the first 10 minutes of the film, I think it should be rated at least PG-13. That's my own take on it though. Or or 12A as it were. And a final piece of news today, which is actually more of a announcement about something coming up. The 2010 Podcast Awards are quickly approaching. If you've been a long-time listener of the show, you know we try to um, get nominated in the, in the Podcast Awards every year. And for the years we've tried, we have. And I think for each year that we've been nominated, we also won, thanks to the amazing support of you, the listener. So... The 2010 Podcast Awards are coming up. Nominations will be opening on November 7th. And this year we are trying to run in the People's Choice as well as the Entertainment category. So there's two categories we want to compete in this year. People's Choice and Entertainment. So again, the 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 period for nominations will be opening on november 7th we will post details on mugglecast.com as well as on our twitter and facebook so you know exactly how to help us out we hope you can help us we'd love to win this year it's it's a perfect time for us to compete in the podcast awards considering that the movie is just coming out so keep an eye out for details about that soon and we really appreciate your support the people's choice award is the is the big yeah, award. that's it, the top. It's gun. a big award. We really try and push this voting and nomination, not only because we've been successful in the past; everybody has really come together. But even five years down the road, you know, MogoCast celebrated its its fifth birthday just a few months ago, and uh, you know, we're still producing what I know I feel is a quality show. And you know, I know the three of us contribute to it greatly, and still feel as though it's relevant. And uh, you know, certainly one of one right. of the best things a listener you know can do for us. Um, if they feel the same, it is to support us at, at these podcast awards, um, you know, which are which are the creme de la creme. They are the uh, the the big kahuna, actually. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's been overall, like Eric said, it's been a big year for us. You know, crossing that threshold of five years, two hundred episodes. You know, getting David Heyman and talking to him, and as well as Warwick Davis, he was also on the show this year. So, you know, it, and obviously none of this could be done without the support of everybody out there who listens. So, as Eric mentioned, you know, kind of kind of the way you can give back to us is by helping us out here and going out and vote. So, so, so everybody who ever sent in a chicken soup, we have your name and your city. So <laughs> if you don't vote for us, we will we will find you. So that's it for news. Later on in the show, we're going to be, of course, reading your emails. And we're also going to do Dueling Club Ghost Edition in honor of Halloween. And also, recently, we asked on our Twitter if anyone's dressing up for Halloween in a Harry Potter costume besides Eric. And we got some of your responses. So we'll be re- reading those, too. But for now, chapter by chapter, this week we're looking at chapters 16 through 18 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Micah's kicking us off with chapter 16, The Goblet of Fire, the title How of the book. How appropriate. <laughs> uh, so when we last left off, uh, the uh, students from Bobatons and Durmstrang had arrived. And uh, the chapter begins with um, you know, kind of a funny exchange between Ron and Hermione over Victor Crump. Uh, and then they get into it a little bit um, when the Viola girl from Bobatons comes over and asks Ron 
uh, for the French Boulia base. And uh, you can see a little bit of tension developing here. Do you guys notice that? Um, Ron, clearly, he's enamored by Victor Crumb, but he's very much enamored uh, even more so by uh, who we later find out is Flor Delacour. Yeah, yeah, Ron is a little... Ron is a little uncertain in uh, who he likes to uh, fangirl more. Yeah. Yeah. Teenage love. But um, I think Victor Crumb, it's interesting because in these next few chapters, we see a lot more of Victor Crumb, or we see, you know, a fair amount of Victor Crumb, and he's described very often as being sulky, like in a corner and kind of a loner, and it's interesting that he has all of this attention, especially, you know, guys like Ron, who are very rarely passionate about anything. Um, other than themselves, and you know, he's got this, this, this hardcore dedication as being, you know, this, this distinction as being a, a great Quidditch player. So it's, it's kind of interesting to, to see him act in these, in these, in these moments. Yeah, and you could definitely see the jealousy start to develop a little bit on the part of Hermione, especially when Ron suggests that the girl must be part Vila. um, because he just can't seem to take his eyes off of her, no matter what he does. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now, an interesting question here. Um, you know, does it say something when these two schools arrive that Durmstrang ends up sitting with Slytherin, and uh, Bobatins ends up sitting with Ravenclaw? Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, Durmstrang obviously is very heavily involved in the dark arts, and they sit with a uh, a house that's associated with Tom Riddle and Voldemort. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, Bo Batten seems to find something about Ravenclaw that they like. You know, they're sort mm. of the more intelligent, intellectual group, and that seems to be where they, yeah. they go to. I think, I think if the, I mean, let's play the opposites here. I mean, if Durmstrang sat with Hufflepuff, you know, there there might be a few Hufflepuffs. <laughs> they would mix. Yeah, there, there might be a few Hufflepuffs that wouldn't leave the table or leave the, the Great Hall that night. You know, target practice. I, I don't know what the Durmstrang kids do, but yeah, I think I think the um, you know, considering that some of Bobatons or at least Fleur Delacour are actually Vila, as Micah just said, you know, it, it, it's it, maybe maybe it's just that the Ravenclaws are are more proper, more can control themselves a little bit better. You know, Ravenclaws being intellectual has more self control. It could also maybe be that the head of house invites the students to sit at their table. But I agree, there's definitely some connection there. Mm -hmm. Well, Ron was very strongly voicing his uh, opinion for Victor Crump to come sit over at the Gryffindor table. And you'd think, you know, Potter being over there, that that would be a lure for either of those two schools to want to sit there. But Well, yeah, and we'll talk about happen. that more in a little bit. But the fame thing within the school is kind of interesting because Victor is sort of being treated by Ron as others do towards Harry. Uh, but Victor has more of a celebrity to him, um, of course, because of the World Cup. So you know what I, I, um, you know what I just thought of. I don't know about that. I, I just, what? I just solved it. Victor Crumb, uh, Durmstrang is associated with the Slytherins and um, Bobatons with the Ravenclaws because together, then the four champions also make up the four Hogwarts houses because Hufflepuff has their Cedric Diggory, so no one, sit, you know, the other two schools don't sit with them and. Gryffindor as Harry Potter, so it, huh. it, that's interesting. It's kind of foreshadowing where the the champions uh, or the the other schools are sitting with the houses that don't and won't have champions this year. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. I wonder if that was planned, but I I still agree with Micah's point. The 
Bobat and Ravenclaw and Slytherin uh, Durmstrang connections. Yeah. yeah. Oh, both valid points. And All also, right, so- uh, Karkaroff and Snape are both former Death Eaters. I don't know if that has anything to <laughs> do with it. Karkaroff and Malfoy's father and all sorts of... Well, that's sort of my point, which is Snape knows Karkaroff, so he could invite him to for his students oh, okay. to stay at the table. Yeah. Uh, so Dumbledore introduces Barty Crouch Sr. Uh, and Ludo Bagman, who uh, join the, the table up at the uh, front of the hall. And he reveals the Goblet of Fire. He explains you know, the guidelines and how you can go about entering. And, you know, I'm wondering why even have such strict guidelines um, for those that are entering. You know, isn't it dangerous regardless to expose 17-year-olds to such binding magical contracts? I mean, Dumbledore explicitly says, you know, when you put your name in the Goblet of Fire, it creates a binding magical contract. And, you know, isn't this a little bit of a risk for somebody no matter what age they are, you know, you're talking about students here. You know, mm-hmm. Why put them in such harm? Well, that's the thrill of the Quidditch World Cup, and I think it's sort of mentioned a little later on that... You mean the Triwizard Tournament? Sorry, yeah, the, the Triwizard Tournament. That's the thrill of it, is that there there is danger to this, and it tests the wizard or witch's true abilities mm-hmm. uh, and their strengths. So and I will say, though, I think there should have been more warning about, look, if you put your name in this, first of all, and they did warn you are committed to it. But second of all, this stuff really is dangerous. We're not kidding around here. This is not, yeah. you know, some class lesson. They really should have made it so other people couldn't put other people's name in the Goblet of Fire, too. But I guess then we wouldn't have a book. Yeah. Right. And, well, it's interesting, though, and we'll talk about this later on, I think, in the next chapter uh, or, or the one after that. I don't remember which one. But, you know, Ludo Bagman actually says that there wasn't an age restriction prior to this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can talk about that a little bit once it comes up. Yeah, well, it's it's um, interesting to compare because the magic of the Goblet of Fire is, you know, has the ability to read a name that you put in and and assess that person's, uh, you know, criteria the, the the as whether they're fit to be a school champion. So, based on their name on a slip of paper, it can judge up, you know, their their characteristics, their personality. Like that's the magic right. of the goblet. So. You know, Michael, what you just said with with you know the the age restriction being a very new thing, it would be interesting to think that uh, you know a long time ago, you know, someone who was younger, like a thirteen year old, could actually be chosen as a school champion along with a seventeen or an eighteen year old uh, student. And now, uh, Fred and George jokingly ask Harry if he'll enter. And uh, Harry wondered how angry Dumbledore would be if someone younger than 17 did find a way to get over the age line. And my comment was, don't worry, Harry, you'll find out soon enough. <laughs> Mike Newell has solved this problem. Mike Newell, <laughs> along with Michael Gambin and the lovely folks at Warner Brothers. Oh, man. Uh, so after the introduction of the Goblet of Fire, they have their feast. And uh, as they're vacating the Great Hall, Karkaroff stops to stare at Harry. It takes him, uh, you know, a couple seconds to realize who he is, uh, but then Mad Eye Moody comes along, and there's this interesting interaction that takes place between the two, and we know Karkaroff is in a state of shock because he's face to face with whom he believes to be Moody the Auror. Uh, but reading this for the first time, this should be a tip to Karkaroff's dark past. Yeah. 
because you know you i mean i understand moody is not the best looking person in the world <laughs> so naturally people might have that kind of reaction upon seeing him but the the way that they say that karkaroff goes white in the face or he goes pale in the face mm-hmm. it's very clear that there's past history between these two definitely <laughs> and i know like last show andrew you mentioned well you know hopefully we see more of these types of moments you know, sort of these foreshadowing moments um, throughout the course of the book. Um, now, Moody, a.k.a. Barty Crouch Jr., has his magical eye fixed upon Karkaroff's back, a look of intense dislike upon his mutilated face, because he despises Karkaroff, who's a former Death Eater. And so, again, it's sort of that split Meaning. perspective yeah. From Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr. You could either read it that Moody has his eye fixed upon Karkaroff because he's a former Death Eater and they have a past history together, or because it's Barty Crouch Jr. who really hates this guy who has been a turncoat and, you know, tried to really make his past as a Death Eater uh, invisible at this point. And yeah. You know what I'm saying? And the real, but yeah, I mean, the real answer is that it, the latter, the latter. It's Barty Crouch, you, yeah. And, right. And, and but, he's pissed at, at Karkaroff for what he's done and leaving Voldemort and, you know, basically disowning the whole Death Eater thing and, and trying to start over by being this head of, or headmaster at uh, Durmstrang. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course, the reader perspective is. The first one, Moody. So, or why Moody's upset? So it's it's a cool double meeting. Yep, absolutely. And something you wouldn't catch unless, at least, I didn't. You, you'd catch have to it. read it the second yeah, time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, well, of course, this is not the second time we're reading this book. We've no, it no, hundreds of times. Oh, come on, please. <laughs> you know, speak for yourself. It's only it's only an eight hundred page novel. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the uh, the next day, the trio spend uh, visiting Hagrid. And uh, they get into a discussion about S-P-E-W, Andrew, there you go, uh, I won't say the other word, and uh, is it odd to, that Hagrid can really understand how house elves operate better than Hermione? No, he. I don't think no. Hermione, I think Hermione understands it, she just doesn't, she just won't accept it, it's, it's not, it's more about personal, uh, personal opinion on slavery versus you know actual knowledge hermione's got this you know what i mean hermione has this inflated idea of what the house elves not are capable of but but just of their perspective like hagrid hangs around with loser magical beings all the time okay and so it's not unusual that he can sympathize or at least can put off this this under this this idea that he knows what they truly feel like you know he hangs out with aragog and 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 you know all the creatures in the forest centaurs you know most people don't get along with so the fact that he's lecturing hermione on uh you know house elves not wanting sick leaves and pension that sort of thing you know as nick had said earlier i i think it i think it's fitting and i think also that hagrid cares about hermione and he doesn't want her getting too stressed out you know involved in this cause that you know that he feels is is kind of you know a moot point or kind of uh, not worth it for good reasons 
Right. I, you know, it's interesting to hear him say that they're happy with what they do. And, you know, when he refers to Dobby as being an odd one in every lot, you know, he's sort of like, <laughs> you know, you get you get that weirdo in every group, uh, you know. So, so, you know, for Hagrid to be saying that is, you know, a little bit comical um, and hypocritical. But uh, it just seems like everybody in the wizarding world that is human seems to think that that this is what house elves are like and and this is how their lives have always been and will continue to be so well and and unfortunately we do have the two case studies that have the worst masters i mean dobby had the malvoys as his master and winky has you know this this troubled crouch family as as her master so you know, and 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 Barty Crouch Senior is 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 very near the end of his life, very manic, you know, not quite stable um, as a master. So when Joe is 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 playing these, you know, these race questions, you know, to us about what house elves deserve and and the kind of treatment that they get, you know, it's very meant to resonate because we have these examples of house elves being oppressed. And the question she's trying to ask us as well as Hogwarts, and this is what you know Hermione is concerned with: is is Hogwarts oppressing this race of house elves? Yeah, are they, are they contributing to a larger problem? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we finally get to Halloween evening and uh, the Goblet of Fire selection, and uh, as we all know, the Durmstrang champion is Victor Crumb. The Bobatons champion is Flor Delacour, and the Hogwarts champion is Cedric Diggory, and then of course the fourth champion ends up being Harry Potter. So uh, that's really all I have for this chapter. There's, there's, I don't really think there's much more to discuss. I mean, it, there's more fact in this chapter than than topics mm-hmm. to really go don't into. Need to make excuses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 sorry. That was a good. That was a, well, that was a weighty I, oh. discussion. One thing we should talk about as we go into this next chapter is why Cedric was chosen. Because during Micah's chapter, we get the explanation that the, the goblet will select based on skills and such. Why why was Cedric chosen? I mean, Crumb makes sense. Floor for for an all girls school. Well, well, it's not all girls. It's not all girls. It's well, it is in the movie. That's the difference. You know, the movie. Yeah, it's not portrays the, uh, Bobaton. As the okay. all-girls school, but in the book is very much not. Well, putting putting them to a side, what what is why Cedric? I I mean, then again, to be fair, who else really in the school stands out? I I don't think any characters, especially that's a good that's a good question. I, I don't think any characters at this point, especially in the series, it was to give really Hufflepuff their one moment really in the series, aside probably from the final battle. I think. If if you look at it, they're just irrelevant, and I don't mean that in a bad way. You get no. hundreds of freaking emails now. <laughs> Are you kidding? I call ourselves how... a loser race. <laughs> I don't even get many more emails about that. But I I think that you know if, if from a writing standpoint, you know the way that they're portrayed is just that they're they're not as relevant to the story, and they're not as relevant. You know, really, if you were attending Hogwarts, they're sort of the overlooked house. And this was that one opportunity for them to be able to shine and to have somebody represent them 
it's funny you should mention that because there is this like whole paragraph devoted to Hufflepuffs in the next chapter. But I think Cedric Diggory represents, you know, obviously he represents the qualities of his house. And because at this point, up to this point in the books, it hadn't been clear what Hufflepuff was really about. I feel like Joe devoted you know a portion of this book especially with you know the the character of cedric diggory to showing what kind of traits like like loyalty i believe the sorting hat says regarding hufflepuff you know what exactly hufflepuff had so cedric diggory very much is you know the representation of hufflepuff but it it shows as well the fact that the the Goblet of Fire chose him shows that there is, uh, you know, some sort of quantifiable uh, trait that goes into becoming a champion that, that Hufflepuff has. It doesn't rule them out of the coolest people on Earth list. It, you know, it, it tries and give them a little boost up. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at what Cedric has done, other than being a Quidditch player and also being a prefect, there wasn't really anything stand out. But then again, other than Harry Potter, I don't know if there are many stand out superstar people in Hogwarts. Right. You know, and, so, and Cedric I, I, is a I good think... student. Let's not let's not forget yeah, he's yeah. probably good at academics and that counts for something. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the other side of it though too is he's popular. You know, he's the the one person that you could put Harry Potter against that is going to have the school turn on him. If that makes sense, yeah. You know, here, here's somebody who's not just liked by Hufflepuff; he's really liked by all four houses. And you know, if if you take somebody like that and then have the counter be Harry, you know, people are going to be in favor of, of of Cedric because it seems like Harry gets all the glory. Let's well, face well, it. Well, coming up, yeah. Coming up next week, we're going to have an exclusive interview with the Goblet of Fire, who's going to tell <laughs> us why he. Or she, I Are guess. Are you kidding? This uh, selected. This, this is how it's gonna go. This is gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be like, uh, it's gonna be like a Frenchman smoking a cigarette. He's like, yes, well, I get their names and I just, mm. no, wow, that derailed totally. Um, I feel like, <laughs> well, then I feel like he's just gonna admit that was like partially Mr. Burns, yes, and and not quite. But he's going to be like, yes, well, I get their names and I search them up on Facebook and oh, that's Cedric Diggory. He just has this. This incredible profile picture, these eyes, he's just like Matt Britton's eyes. They're just like beautiful. And I just had to choose him because his Facebook, but you would be like something like that. So, well, all right. So let's move on now to chapter 17, the four champions. Harry and everyone in the room are in shock that his name cat came out of the Goblet of Fire, of course. And the, the only person who seemed to be fascinated and really excited by it was Ludo Bagman. And Mikey, you're wondering why was it that the age restriction was never in place before, and why add it now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know. well, uh, this kind of fits in here because you know th this is where all the discussion starts between uh, the heads of the different schools and and Barty Crouch Senior and and Ludo Bagman. So you know, Bagman does mention, as we talked about in the last chapter, that uh, th there wasn't an age restriction prior to this point. So the question is, why now? Why decide to implement an age restriction? One would think that it would be to prevent Harry from getting into the Triwars of the tournament. So it kind uh, of but also it's But specifically, no, Harry? No, but I also think it's just... I think it's just because it's dangerous and they realize we do need to put a restriction yeah. on it. Uh, because when, when, you know, say a 13-year-old gets in, uh, there would probably be a lot of outlash in in the wizarding world. A lot of people saying, "Well, why why would someone be so young be able yeah. to fight?" Even though 
the Goblet of Fire selects it based on yeah. uh, a good match for it. So theoretically, the Goblet of Fire, no matter what age, would select someone based on you know if he if the Goblet thought it could. Yeah. The person could compete like, successfully. Let's not now, forget that these people have school governors to answer to. And if you want to say we're bringing back this ancient tournament that hasn't been held in hundreds of years. You're going to have to have some new restrictions because there's a reason that the Triwizard Tournament hasn't been held in hundreds of years. It's dangerous, archaic even, like old barbaric torture chambers, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I feel like the age restriction was just one of those things where, you know, if they ever had to take it to the Hogwarts school governors, which realistically I'm sure they would, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that sugarcoats it, that makes it seem less dangerous this time around. So, and Mad what Max- about, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but. You know, we talked a lot about this on the last episode with the unforgivable curses. But how would you be able to enter this tournament without parents' permission? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if well now with the age limit, I if mean, you're technically you're of, yeah, age, of age. So yeah, oh, that's true. So moving along, Madame Maxine and Kerkaroff express their disapproval that Harry was selected. But the way Joe describes Kukarov's actions uh, was interesting. I think it sort of suggests that he was to blame here. She wrote, quote, He was wearing a steely smile. His blue eyes were like chips of ice. He gave a short and nasty laugh, end quote. Is this possibly a hint at the, that he was to blame? I mean, it's not, it's not conclusive, but it was interesting. He seemed a little too pleased with it. I mean, one could say he was pleased because this meant he could pick a fight with Dumbledore and possibly get his way, get another student selected to compete. Yeah. Um, but I think more likely it's just he was pleased his plan worked. And uh, I think it's kind of a red herring. You know, you're supposed to believe because they do the same thing in the movie where they have Karkaroff go in to the room with the Goblet of Fire and, and then he slowly closes the doors as he exits. Uh, right. Yeah. And, right. And I think you're supposed to believe that, that he is the one who put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire um, because he's kind of one of those new characters that you don't know about and usually that's the one that ends up being uh, the troublemaker. But uh, I, I think it's just kind of a misleading um, you know, description of uh, maybe he's just demented. I don't know. <laughs> Well, it it was a I think I agree it was a red herring, and um, definitely the first time you read that you 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 probably could miss it unless you're looking for clues. So the group continues discussing with Maxine and Karkaroff reinforcing their disapproval when Moody comes in, and Moody begins suggesting it was a powerful wizard who is to blame for this. Of course, hinting that it was Karkaroff, but Karkaroff of course has none of it. Bagman, on the other other hand, is very excited by the new twist. He was he was very excited that there was going to be this fun new element to the game with four people. Uh, so why was he so excited? I mean, it's kind of cruel. Uh, he should he was he excited because it would make headlines that there was yeah. a fourth player and the person was underage and it was Harry Potter. <laughs> I mean, I guess from a press standpoint, it was gold. Oh yeah, this is great. This is like this is a and it's a money maker for him. You know, he's going to go out and bet on the tournament. That's true. It, I'd bet on Harry Potter. Wait, I mean, would you though? Wouldn't you? Would you? I mean, probably. I mean, he's got a good enough track record. You look at the past three books. I mean, I'd I'd bet on him winning. I feel like if you just compare him to Crumb, you get this international Quidditch star and some kid who plays Quidditch on the weekends for his school, for his high school. You know, like it's kind yeah. of a big difference. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree, uh, but you know, this also sets up the plot point uh, that Ludo Bagman is is possibly hoping to win back enough money to pay off uh, Fred and George, whom he owes a large sum of money to. Yeah. So I, I think that's part of the reason why he might be happy as well. And um, I don't know though, as far as betting goes, you bring up a good point. I mean, there's probably a number of different reasons to bet money on any of them. Mm-hmm. Eric, I think you added this next point. You're wondering why Dumbledore did not comment when Mr. Crouch gave a different interpretation of the rules than Dumbledore had the previous evening. That's not yeah, my comment. I he says, that. I'm sorry. Oh, Micah. Uh, he says that, quote, if someone's name is ejected from the goblet, he is required to compete in the tournament. The rule, end quote, the rule book wording almost certainly states that any person entering his name into the goblet must compete. So, Micah, you're saying the fact that Harry didn't enter his name means that he shouldn't have to compete. However, everyone's pretty skeptical of Harry. Everyone, As we're going to discuss in a little bit, everyone thinks that it was Harry that put his well, name in. So. The, the reason why I put this point here is that you know, Dumbledore specifically states that any person entering his name creates this magical binding contract. But Barty Crouch Sr. says only when the name is ejected it creates this magical binding no, contract. I get it. And the point being that this should have been a tip-off that something's wrong with Barty Crouch Sr. Like, th- th- he acts really odd during this whole process. And this is like the starting point of seeing him deteriorate throughout the course of the next few chapters. And I just thought, you know, th- this was a you know, an early shot, an early look into the fact that he wasn't in the right state. Because think about what's just happened. They've just added a fourth champion to an event that's only had three champions for how many hundreds of years. And he's complicit in all this. He's not willing to stand up and say something about it. You know, so it's clear that the, you know, Imperius curse is working its, its toll on him. Yeah, I I, I like that discrepancy too where, you know, it is a binding magical contract, but like all contracts, you need to sign somewhere. And I feel like you sign when you put your name in, not not when the goblet chooses your name. Realist, you know, it should be that by entering, by putting your hand in, maybe you have to dip your hand in whatever's in the goblet, excuse me, whatever's in the goblet and, uh, you know, that creates the contract. But the point is he should know this. Th- this is his tournament and for him to be, you know, so off on the rules. Yeah, even it doesn't, a, it doesn't a small it suck. point like this. Doesn't it suck that they got to him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean this is this is sort of the, the the groundwork being laid and you know, he should be really opposed to this whole thing that's happening. He should be launching an investigation into it. You know, we hear um, you know, Percy talk about him so much as being the stickler for detail earlier on in the book, and mm. this is clearly not the same person. Yeah, I, I I blame Dumbledore more because Dumbledore is a character we know more than we know this Barty Crouch Senior Stranger, and I blame Dumbledore for letting all of this go go on. You know, Dumbledore likes to pretend that his hands are tied, um, but I feel like maybe he just has his nails painted and he doesn't want anybody seeing his hands right now. Because yeah, and. You know, yeah, he he lets he lets it off a little too easily. I yeah, think. I agree, and and I think you know the fact that Barty Crouch Senior refused to stay for a drink, and you know if you notice there was that one scene where Moody kind of stepped in, it's it's all about Barty Crouch Junior 
exerting this control over his father and making sure that that nothing happens to compromise. You know, so the Crouch. Plan- Crouch introduces the first task and says, quote, We are not going to be telling you what the first task is. Courage in the face of the unknown is an important quality in the wizard. In a wizard. Very important. <laughs> Which I thought thought sort of uh, relates to Book 7 when Harry's facing Voldemort with the whole courage thing. I thought that was kind of, you know, kind of related. The meeting wraps up, and as Harry and Cedric walk back to their respective common rooms, Cedric asks Harry how he did put his name in the goblet. Harry says, No, I didn't. I insist. But Cedric doesn't believe him, uh, which which disappoints Harry. So Harry gets back into this common room, and Harry is met with a lot of support from fellow Gryffindors. He doesn't like it, though, because he's still really confused about all this, and he's too preoccupied wondering how the hell his name did get in there. And to make matters worse, once he's in bed, Ron also questions whether he put his name in the cup. Harry denies it, but Ron still doesn't believe him, even though... As as Harry says, it should be Ron, who Ron of all people who who trusts him. And, and here's why I don't like this whole thing is that Ron's pretty much with him twenty four seven. So yeah. I, one would yeah. think he would know if yeah. he put his name in, and that's what bothers me about this more than anything else. But it's just Ron being an immature prick. Well, it's 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 just that 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 due to the duration of time that Ron spends with Harry, that was why he was so upset, is because he internalized it and said, well, despite all the time I'm spending with Harry, he still snuck off and did this. Why wouldn't he have shared that with me? We're together, like, almost all the time. And that brings us to Chapter 18, The Weighing of the Wands. Weighing of the Wands. Harry wakes up and Ron's gone. Ron already went down to breakfast. He didn't even wake Harry. He didn't say, Harry, get up. He's not like he kicked him. Or anything like that, Ron's just gone. So Harry wakes up, he's alone in the Gryffindor common room, and he has to go down into the common room. Of course, the common room breaks out in applause. Everybody's still really happy about Harry being the, the champion. And Harry, again, just doesn't like the attention. He's dreading going down to the Great Hall because he knows that Ron is upset with him, and he doesn't want even more people cheering him on or asking how he did it. And he just doesn't want the attention. This is something, it's a it's a renewing character trait with Harry where he doesn't want the attention he's getting. And he doesn't. It's kind of interesting yeah. that everyone is applauding him for something they don't really even know much about. <laughs> it's kind of ominous. They don't know what the first task is. Yeah. They don't know what any of the tasks are going to be. It seems, I don't well, know. You're saying I, people shouldn't you know. be excited about this new tournament then, or? No, I'm I'm saying people should... Be a little more concerned for Harry instead of being excited that he's going to be, you know, their entertainment for the next few months. Yeah, it's just maybe they feel like it's, a, it's yeah kind of thought. Maybe they feel well, like he's Micah really does. their entertainment for seven years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe they feel like Micah does. You know, he's survived this far. He's, he's got a pretty good track record. But yeah. So anyway, Harry um, leaves the common room to go down and get breakfast. Fortunately, Hermione is right there, and she already has brought toast up for Harry and says, let's take a walk. I thought this was a really nice uh, moment in the books. You know, Harry and Hermione take a walk. They do They do walk along the lake, and she's brought Toast up from, you, you know, the Great Hall. This is just good insight into Harry's character from Hermione. You know, she's being she's being a good friend, and this is this is played out in contrast to Ron and how he's behaving. Yeah, yes. I agree. Um, anyway, Hermione tries to convince Harry... Um, while they're walking to write to Sirius, um, Sirius doesn't want to do that, and uh, 
she's worried, you know, obviously just for his safety, but he doesn't want any more attention, et cetera, et cetera. And Hermione makes an interesting comment. She says um, that Harry is in half the books about you-know-who already um, while, the, while they're talking about him being being popular and getting attention. She says she doesn't want uh, – she thinks there's a write-up already in the, in the Daily Prophet probably. But uh, half the books about you-know-who, doesn't that number seem low to you guys? Well, I was thinking maybe – those books are outdated. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, they're so probably they, books they were written... about his rise to power or something like that. But, okay, right? so yeah. so my, my I guess my point was many people seem to be ignorant of Voldemort or, like, who he was before he was Voldemort. And, you know, surely, like, a lot of the subject matter is going to be about his downfall um, and therefore have Harry Potter. I just think the number of Harry being in half the books about you-know-who, it suggests that there are – you know, a whole another half of books about you know who that don't have Harry Potter in them. What would they be about if people don't, in fact, know that Voldemort used to be a man named Tom Riddle? If people don't, in fact, know that Voldemort is a direct descendant of Slytherin, and you, you know what I'm saying is the knowledge should be yeah. out there that would enable other people to eventually find the Horcruxes, or at least you know the the Gaunt family and that sort of thing. Yeah, but I think probably those books are about his, as I said before, his rise to power. You know, maybe once he became Voldemort, forget about Tom Riddle. Very few people know about that. Uh, you know, I think it was probably from whenever he first started, you know, gaining a following and gaining power, you know, uh, up to the point of, of when that first war took place. I mean, you could write a book on that, you know, prior to whatever happened with the Potters. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, uh, maybe you create a second edition or a third edition, whatever it might be. But there can definitely be books out there about him and about what he did um, and things that he did prior to what happened on the night that he went to Godric's Hollow. So I think that, you know, that, that, that there's definitely books out there about him that, that have no mention of Harry Potter. You know, it could be, think, think if you're, uh, like a Borgen or Burke, you know, you write a book about Voldemort, you know, as he's rising to power and, and how powerful he is. You know, you're, that's true. Obviously, Harry's, it hasn't even been conceived at this point yet. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Voldemort have like a seven year reign or something like that where he was terrorizing people for quite some time? It's, yeah, it's, it's called sure. the first war, you know. So yeah, absolutely, yeah, I, I do suppose you're you're very right on that. And I guess my point was um, too that that Hermione is is probably not exaggerating. You know, when when she says you're in half the books, I, I feel like Hermione is pretty reliable that he is probably in half those books. That we aren't, you know, supposed to take that to mean that it's just any number of books. So I don't know. Anyway, um, okay. So the next comment we we talked about earlier uh, in this discussion, so we'll be brief. Um, but there's a quote in the books, and it's talking about everybody giving Harry crap because uh, it seems like – or now it really is – the whole school is against Harry. Uh, they either think he cheated or the Hufflepuffs in particular think that he's trying to take the glory away from Cedric. Uh, so here's the quote from the book. Um, the Hufflepuffs 
sorry, let me, here's the quote from the book. Um, Joe writes, the Hufflepuffs, who were usually on excellent terms with the Gryffindors, had turned remarkably cold toward the whole lot of them. It was plain that the Hufflepuffs felt that Harry had stolen their champion's glory, a feeling exacerbated, perhaps, by the fact that Hufflepuff House very rarely got any glory, and that Cedric was one of the few who had ever given them any, having beaten Gryffindor once at Quidditch. End quote. This is uh, perhaps the biggest insight into the mindset of the Hufflepuffs, like, ever in in the series. Um, so it's interesting that Joe acknowledges this, um, because she's trying to uh, explain why even the Hufflepuffs turn against him. But did you guys have any thoughts on this, like, yeah. at all? But But shouldn't they know to believe Harry by this point? I mean... You look what happened in Chamber of Secrets when they thought that that he was responsible for what happened to uh, Justin Finch Fletchley, um, and you know they were all talking behind his back. Hannah Abbott, and Ernie McMillan. There's that scene um, in in Chamber of Secrets, and it it ends up being that Harry is the one not responsible for any of this. Um, so it, it's just. It, they should know by this point that that usually the accusations that are made against Harry, you know, the heir of Slytherin thing, and and now this put putting his name in the goblet of fire, usually don't end up being true. So, but I can understand the animosity because, as we said before, you know, Cedric is their house and is representative of their house. So they have every right to be ticked off that there's somebody who's clearly more well known than him. Has, has sort of overshadowed him now and taken away this glory. Think about you know rivalries that exist between schools or even within schools or within districts. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing, in my right. opinion, anyway. Right. But no, I think the large majority of this comes from the animosity about stealing Cedric's thunder. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, of course, everybody is upset with Harry, even Draco, and, uh, Draco has this, uh, throwaway line, he's insulting Harry, and he says that, um, half the Triwizard Champions have died. And I thought that was interesting, it's another moment in this chapter where a character says half of something, but if that's true, then, um... That's pretty. That is pretty high odds. I know we talked about how safe the Triwizard Tournament is or isn't, but if half the champions have died in the past, maybe they really should have rethought holding this tournament. Because half is pretty high odds, and by the end of this book, almost half the champions have died again. Well, I think it's Dumbledore, uh, you know, personality shining through again. You know, he's a big risk taker, and he, you know, the, the whole reason I think he's doing this is is to bring everybody together, you know, for that final battle in, in Deathly Hallows, you know, to sort of unite, not just, um, you know, the, these three schools, but to unite Hogwarts as a whole. This is the beginning of all of that taking place. And that's sort of his plan being put into action very early on. And so it, it is, it's a huge risk that he's taking, obviously, and he's putting people's lives in danger, but it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, and certainly these are not the first people he's put in harm's way. And it's it's a tradition. It's a very large tradition. I mean, this is a very epic event. Everyone's been talking about it. We've we've seen people talking about it since the beginning of the book because it's so exciting to mm-hmm. them. So mm-hmm. I don't know at the end of the day what it really proves or does for anything in the wizarding world, but... Uh, it's a very well-respected event. I guess so. Or feared. 
But um, moving on, Malfoy and Harry do end up dueling. They're sitting outside of potions waiting for Snape. And Harry casts a spell on Malfoy that is not Expelliarmus, which I thought... <laughs> he casts Fernunculus, which uh, causes boils to appear on Goyle's face. And Malfoy's spell was Densuagio, uh, which caused... Those are two very funny words. Hits, yeah, funny words, spells never seen again, as far as I recall. And very, very interesting where they pick up these these spells. Of course, Malfoy's spell hits Hermione and makes her teeth grow abnormally large. Um, <laughs> it's just um very interesting that that Harry casts something that's not Expelliarmus. I thought that was worth noting. Um, moving on, uh, Colin Creevy saves the day. Well, can I just throw in one thing yeah. here? It, it, the thing you left out is is what happens when Snape arrives. Yeah, that was a point um, I cut for the interest of time, but uh, yeah, but I think it's important because it shows Snape being a complete ass and. You know, if you think about what would happen to a teacher in this day and age for doing something like that, he would be sent packing to insult a student that way to, you know, basically have enlarged teeth. Think of a comparison in, you know, say somebody gets hit in the face with something and the teacher turns around and says, oh, I don't see that much of a difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Hermione is very upset with this and Snape, you know, he says, I don't, I don't notice the difference. That's, that's irresponsible. That's completely, it's horrible. Is what it is. Yeah, that's it's a terrible thing. So, yeah. Anyway, um, so they're in the potions lesson. Harry is sure that Snape is about to poison him because they're testing antidotes, and Snape is I don't know eyeing him funny. Um, fortunately, Colin Creevy shows up in the potions room and says Harry needs to go and be excused because he's needed upstairs. Snape objects. Da 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 da. But Colin says. Oh, it's for the wand weighing ceremony. And this is something Harry didn't know about. I'm wondering why nobody either scheduled the wand weighing ceremony at another time that wasn't during potions, or why Harry didn't know to, like, expect this wand weighing this, ceremony. This is the first time Harry heard of this. What is this? This is... There's the- there's not much organization in Hogwarts, so for something like this to happen is completely normal and Didn't expected. Didn't get the memo? Well, I think the, the part of this, though, too, is to really just increase the hatred towards Harry. Oh, look at him. He's able to get out of class so he can go yeah. and participate in this special event. It pisses Ron off to no end. You know, it's just to set up those types of plot points, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, say, moving on. Uh, okay, so he goes upstairs. Rita Skeeter's up there. Um, with her photographer, who's like Zobo or Bonzo in the movie. Um, she gets Harry alone, and and we meet the the quick quotes Quill. Um, (laughs) Fortunately, he's rescued by Dumbledore, and uh, just before that happens, or like when that happens, there are some weird uh, descriptors that Joe uses for Rita, and I'm going to quote from the book. Harry noticed that her quill and the parchment had suddenly vanished from the box of magical mess remover, and Rita's clawed fingers were hastily snapping shut the clasp of her crocodile skin bag. How are you? she said, standing up and holding out one of her large, mannish hands to Dumbledore. Uh, end quote. Mannish hands? She's not. Joe isn't talking about me in my Halloween costume here. She's talking about Rita Skeeter. 
Claude man hands. Claude man hands. She's got man hands. <laughs> what's what's the deal? What that's is the sometimes purpose of what? This? That's uh, the purpose of it is to describe Rita as a larger than life figure. No, I I, I don't <laughs> know. Is There's... Rita ugly? Like yeah. See, I'm afraid to say anything to offend or be like offensive. Like I feel like man hands is a sort of it is a sort of derogatory. I know she doesn't use the word man hands but that's basically what she's saying it's it's derogatory is it it's to make her seem like a man well she's not it just means not feminine right i mean the 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 kind of yeah so partly yeah uh i mean she's she's kind of like a vulture i guess there are more vulture allegories like clawed hands for instance i guess that probably just fits her character which but... is a complete opposite of of miranda richardson in, in the goblet of fire film i mm, mean do you think so She's not. She's not manly. No, she. No, she's definitely not. <laughs> no, she's not manly, but she is. Um, but she knows what she wants, and I guess uses different ways to get it. Yeah, it's just it was a weird descriptor. Um, okay, so Ollivander is in, and uh, he he weighs everybody's wands. I don't I don't know what the the purpose is. I guess he says the purpose is to make sure that their wands are all functional. Really, I think Ollivander doesn't have a lot to do when it's not school season, so he just looks for these Probably excuses not. to go around. Um, he finds out that, or he he says, we find out reading the this, the book that Fleur's wand is actually made of Vila hair. Um, she says it's her grandmother's, and uh, Harry reminds himself to tell Ron about that that she is Vila, but remembers Ron isn't speaking to him. Ollivander says, "I've never used Vila hair myself, of course." I find it makes for rather temperamental wands. And I thought this was funny because that is funny. Yeah. And, and uh, I wonder what other descript or what other types of hair would, you know, what effects they would yeah. have. Like, like that is very interesting. I mean, I can't think of any examples on the spot, but maybe like a giant's hair or like <laughs> a half giant's hair. I don't like, like that would make someone clumsy maybe or, magnified. or make the spells clumsy. Yeah. Yeah, the spell's bigger. Who knows? <laughs> so uh, Cedric's wand contains a single hair, quote, from the tail of a particularly fine male unicorn. <laughs> then Ollivander says, must have been 17 hands nearly gored me with his horn after I plucked his tail. So I guess that means that Ollivander physically goes out and gets, acquires, procures the the, the unicorn hair, phoenix tail feathers, and dragon heartstrings that make up the core of his wands? Yeah, that's pretty cool. So that explains what he's doing when uh, school when when people aren't shopping for wands. I guess so. He's going out and making closes them. down and goes goes wand hunting. Well, I I wrote here that it sounds like he shouldn't be kidnappable because he's so experienced out on the field. Because he because he can get he can pluck a a tail feather off a unicorn and not get gored. Like it just sounds like I don't know. I know it's funny, but um, all right. So Ron is still not talking with Harry when he gets back. Um, he just says, "Harry, you got a letter." And uh, Harry reads the letter. It's from Sirius. Uh, Harry did end up writing to Sirius. I don't know if I, I wrote that. He kind of summarizes things. But um, Sirius wants to meet Harry face-to-face -face at 1 a.m. on the 22nd of November. 
Now, I looked this up because I've been a big uh, supporter, or actually the opposite of a supporter. I, I don't like this this timeline that people have established, saying that Book 4 is in 1994. And I looked it up, and uh, sure enough, I mean, I think eventually Joe gave in and was like, sure, Book 4 is 1994. But uh, the 22nd of November is a Tuesday. So if we go by canon here, Sirius wants to meet Harry face-to-face at 1 a.m. on Tuesday night. And I say, that's a school night. Sirius is officially a bad role model for Harry. Well, it's not like Harry, you know, well, we don't know for sure, but I presume they're not going to bed early every night or anything. I don't think Sirius is really damaging him. And plus, that's the best time because nobody's in the common room. I mean, sure. And, you know, on a weekend night, people may be, uh, yeah, on a weekend night, people may be up at 1 a.m. in the common room. So, yep, yep. So I agree. That concludes the chapter. So that's. That's it. We have one tweet here from Liz Ann B. She has a question about these chapters. Why does Dumbledore interrogate interrogate Harry, asking if another student put his name in the goblet, and not ask about non-students? Is this a book question, or I is think this a movie question? Be- book. Book. Okay. Book. I, I think the reason would be that Dumbledore just assumes he's working with other students. I mean, unless it was serious, I don't, I don't think Dumbledore would assume any other possible non-student that, that would do it for Harry. Yeah, th- there's nobody there. I mean, Lupin's gone. I mean, he would probably be the only one. I mean, he's not going to ask McGonagall to do it for him, or Moody, who's just gotten there, wouldn't be a wouldn't be a candidate. Snape sure as hell wouldn't be putting it in for him. So, I mean, it, it I guess doesn't from a plot standpoint, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, I think overall we kind of talked about, I think Dumbledore really botched this whole thing. You know, I, I think there should have been a huge investigation other than just saying, well, there's a binding magical contract and the kid has to do it. You know, it's it, that, that's so it seems so irresponsible. Yeah. It undermines everything that he's trying to do with bringing everybody together. If he can be controlled the way he is in this book. Um, but I, I had, uh, that reminds me of a question. Okay. Doesn't Snape threaten to use Veridiserum on Harry in this book? Like Veridiserum shows up later when they use it on, Barty Crouch Jr. This would have been that would have been helpful here. Yeah, well, like I, like I'm saying, it's very very easy, very simplistic to 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 find out if Harry put his name in the Goblet of Fire and clear his name because the last thing any student needs. I I think okay. On one hand, Dumbledore doesn't want to torture Harry and be like you know give him any kind of substance that's gonna force him to tell the truth. Heaven forbid somebody ask him like what he does with himself at night, you know, and he has to answer. But I feel like it would have cleared Harry's name and would have prevented him from a lot of uh, hatred. It would have cleared his name, but I don't think it would have made a difference, though. I think he was still had to compete in the tournament, and, and that's what it comes down to. I, I think a majority of people in that room, maybe with Karkaroff and, and Madame Maxine aside, believe that he didn't put his name in there. I mean, I don't think Dumbledore does. I don't think McGonagall does. Um, and and well, I'm Moody definitely about, doesn't. Yeah, I'm talking about Harry's peers, though, because you've got the situation where, sure, he, he what, has what to What, are you going to put him on display in front of the Great Hall? And With Veritaserum? Maybe and... not, but I'm saying, look, I mean, Harry now has to – it's not only being a tribe, being the youngest champion and ha- and still having to do the tournament no matter what. It's it's in addition to that is the crap he has to go through in classes bec- for the stupid reason that people think he put his name in. It doesn't matter if they ever find out who really did it because they will anyway through the natural course of time. But I feel like that would have been one of the ways that we know is in this book is introduced, you know, maybe a little further along, but would have really helped Harry out uh, given all that Harry is doing for Dumbledore and has to do for Dumbledore in the future. If, if at this point Dumbledore counts on Harry to defeat Voldemort one day. 
you know, D- Dumbledore right. could have outstretched uh, one of his painted hands a little bit further there. Let's get to Muggle Mail now. This first one's from Nicole Shields, 26, of Columbia, Missouri. She writes about the Imperious Curse. I just want to make sure the point that one can leave the side of a person under the Imperious Curse. For example, in, a- in Half-Blood Prince, Malfoy doesn't spend every moment with Rosmerta, who he has under the Imperious Curse. He places the curse and then stays in the castle, controlling her from there. Also, in Book 7, Yaxley, in Chapter 1, Page 5, American Edition... Uh, says that he has placed the Imperious Curse on P- Pius Thickenies since thick thickeny she spelled it thickness <laughs> since thickness isn't sitting with him at Malfoy Manor. I think it's safe to assume that it's still in effect despite the distance from the castle. Caster. So there's our answer for that. Yeah, that's um, and kind of weird how that happens because I feel like uh, with any spell you should have to make eye contact, but it's canon. Well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you look also look at the fact that you know Barty Crouch Senior, you know, he eventually st- stops showing up at work, but he he is still going to work at this point in the book, and clearly is under the Imperious Curse from Peter Pettigrew, so it has to be able to work from a distance. Next email is from Lucinda, fifty three, Virginia. She writes, "Just wondering why you think Moody slash Barty Crouch was telling the truth when he tells the class Dumbledore thinks they are ready to know about the unforgivable curses." Or agreed they should experience the Imperious Curse. I think he used Dumbledore's name to keep the students from questioning his teaching these curses. Well, the discussions, especially while I'm rereading the books, before the next movie comes out. Mm. I think Dumbledore would have found out, though, eventually. I oh, mean, easily. It's okay for Moody to use his name, but I, I, I think that, you know, it's not like it's going on without Dumbledore's knowledge. Yeah. I don't think Dumbledore... Dumbledore can... Be a little screwy, but when it comes to what's going on in the classes, I don't think he misses a beat. Wait, did you guys cover this question last week? Why now are they learning the unforgivable curses? Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, we did. We talked a lot about that, okay, actually. Okay, I'll, I'll so. just listen to the last episode. Do do that. Eric, you want to read the next email? Yeah, this one's Carla. Thir- uh, this one's from Carla33 of Montreal. She says, hello all. I just want to start by saying I love your show. You guys are my companions on the way to work. Keep up the good work. Now, as for Moody, a.k.a. Crouch Jr., I just wanted to point out that I believe the reason Moody came to Harry and Ron's defense against Draco has a lot to do about the fact that Crouch Crouch Jr. really hated the Death Eaters that turned their back from Voldemort after he disappeared. Draco represented that by attacking them behind their backs. Crouch Jr. was so upfront about his devotion to Voldemort that he was proud of the fact he went to Azkaban instead of pretending that he was imperious. He's a lot like Bellatrix in that sense. His reaction to Draco was genuine, not only because of Lucius' betrayal to Voldy, but because of Draco's character as well. Thank you all for your show, Carla. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, just uh, following up on what we said last week, that, you know, Barty Crouch was, slash Moody was more than willing to attack Draco um, because of how he felt toward Lucius. And sort of Draco being, you know, the closest thing he could get to Lucius Malfoy. Mike, how about you read that next email? Next email, Eric35 of Dublin writes in, and he says, In Chapter 13 of Goblet of Fire, during divination class, Professor Trelawney makes an interesting observation about Harry. She says, I was saying that Saturn was surely in a position of power in the heavens at the moment of your birth. Your dark hair, your mean stature, tragic losses so young in life. I think I'm right in saying that you were born in midwinter. We later find out in Book 6 that Voldemort was born on New Year's Eve. 
Also, Trelawney's three descriptions of Harry could pertain to Tom Riddle slash Voldemort as well. Since we know that Harry and Voldemort share a link since Voldemort tried to kill Harry as a baby, could Trelawney be seeing a glimpse of the part of Voldemort that is in Harry? Just an interesting bit of foreshadowing that I picked up on. Keep up the great work. I think that's an awesome theory. <laughs> I agree. And, so and, and another double meaning of sorts, like we were talking about earlier with that thing in chapter by chapter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with, with Moody slash Barty Crouch. Uh, that's really cool. I like that a lot. And finally, the last email comes from Haley16 of Minnesota. Hey, MuggleCast, great show. My question is why, in my opinion, do the Harry Potter movies always have cheesy endings? I don't recall the ending of the first movie, but the second movie ended with Hagrid and Hermione coming back and everyone cheering for Hagrid. Third movie ended with the freeze frame ending of Harry on the Firebolt. Fourth ending with people leaving and Hermione says, everything is going to change now, isn't it? Harry says, yes. Cheesy. The fifth ends with them going to the train and Harry says they have something worth fighting for. And number six ends with the trio on the astronomy tower with the fox in the background. Um, Yeah, I think she makes a good point. They've never gotten... A movie ending right, which is kind of worrying for part two. <laughs> part one may be the best one because it'll sort of just drop off. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> she makes a good point. You're right. She does. I can't. What was? Oh, part uh, movie one. She said she couldn't remember. It's they're on the train and they're waving bye to Hagrid. That that wasn't that good. Look, I, don't, That's a I don't have a problem with any of these endings, with the exception of movie three. Well, yeah, actually, you know. Now that I think about it, movie one's ending was nice. Movie three ending was the worst with the freeze frame, no doubt about and, that. And because like the firebolt scene. Thank from, you, like, Alfonso. Yeah, the firebolt scene from the from the middle of the book is at the end of the movie. I, I just I don't even know. So that's all for Muggle Mail. If you want to possibly get your email right on the show, just visit MuggleCast.com and there's a contact form and you can uh, write in that way. Now it's time for Dueling Club Ghost Edition. Uh, in honor of Halloween, Micah and Eric. Micah, thank you for selecting these ahead of time. It wasn't uh, me. It was Eric. <laughs> oh, Eric, thank you. You're, you're wonderful. So, Micah, you are assigned to defend the Grey Lady, and Eric, you are assigned to defend Moaning Myrtle. Micah, you first. Go ahead. Why should the Grey Lady defeat Moaning Myrtle in a duel of the ghosts? Oh, th- this is so simple. I mean, the, the Grey Lady is the daughter of one of the founders of Hogwarts. I mean... Clearly, she would uh, inherit the intellect and and the wisdom of Rowena Ravenclaw. Uh, th- this is a no contest. Moaning Myrtle is just a whining little bitch in the corner <laughs> of the girl's bathroom. She, she was petrified to death by a snake because you know she was too busy letting the emotions get the best of her. I mean, the Grey Lady would eat her up in a matter of seconds. And Micah, Eric, why would you? I anticipated your using that defense, and I have completely prepared myself to meet it. Lord Voldemort is a direct descendant of Salazar Slytherin, and therefore you would assume that he has inherited some of the unique magical strength and powers that come from his bloodline. And, when compared to Harry Potter, a whiny little bitch who has no talent and only always uses Expelliarmus as a spell, you wouldn't expect that Harry, who has never done any studying in his entire life, ends up defeating Voldemort in the end. I compare the two. I compare Moaning Myrtle and the Grey Lady to Harry Potter and Voldemort because I feel like uh, Joe's books are an example of how uh, unprepared little children can go up against great power and still beat the odds and survive. Uh, Okay, so what's Moaning Myrtle's strength then? Is she going to flush the Grey Lady down a toilet? Yeah, yeah. Or (laughs) she's going to haunt her. 
you know, Moaning Myrtle haunted. Oh. A mo- diligence. Well, that would be annoying. Diligence. That <laughs> well, would be annoying. No, I'm saying diligence As because judge- Moaning Myrtle. Hang on, I'm not finished. Moaning Myrtle uh, haunted Olive Hornby for a real long time. That's dedication. It, it takes, you know, it's got to be it's tiresome. It's got to be tiresome. It really has been. So I feel like Moaning Myrtle, no matter what gray lady throw at her, threw at her, Moaning Myrtle would be resilient. Uh, as the judge of this duel, I think Micah wins. Because he's right. There's really nothing to Moaning Myrtle, especially in a duel. Well, there's nothing to Harry Potter. Moaning Myrtle, I think, would be. I mean, huh? there's nothing to Harry Potter either. I mean, <gasps> he happens to get the same wand as Voldemort, and his mother happened to die defending him. And that's really the only reason he even survives the entire book series. And now, as promised, a couple, uh, we asked people on Twitter, if you're going to be dressing up, continuing with the Halloween theme, we're asking, we asked people, they're going to be dressing up for Harry, uh, for Halloween as, you know, a Harry Potter character, just like Eric and his, uh, womanly, uh, get up over there. Uh, Arwen Jesus Freak said, for Halloween, I'm going to be, I'm going to my college's chapter of the Harry Potter Alliance and watching a very Potter musical. I'm very, I'm quite excited. So she's not dressing up, but he or she. Under the Stars writes, I'm dressing up as a Hufflepuff for my band concert on Halloween. And Sing Song Along says, last night, UF held an event called Halloween at Hogwarts, which included, included everything from tisography to trivia. What's tisography? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> So, I'll look um, it up. Hold on a I, second. Well, it doesn't even come up with spell Oh, check. it's a divination or fortune-telling method that interprets patterns Ooh. in tea leaves. Ooh. Oh, tassiography. I knew that. Harry Potter is very Halloween-oriented, so it's it's kind of not a surprise that schools would have Halloween at Hogwarts-like events. That is really cool. Too bad the uh, Wizarding World of Harry Potter didn't do anything. Yeah, that's a Bob the theme fail. park. The theme park has Halloween events, just not the Harry Potter park. Oh, dude, I, I can't believe they didn't do anything for Harry's birthday. They didn't do anything for Halloween. Halloween is the most important holiday in the Harry Potter series. That's completely... And it looks like they're not even doing something for the movie or release. Christmas. I thought Jeez. we would have heard something by now. Yeah. Well, Christmas, we may... There's still time. Uh, before we wrap up the show today, we want to remind everyone about our great little website, MuggleCast.com. It has all the information you need about this show that we do each and every other week. At the top of the site is a contact link, and you can use that to find our P.O. Box address, as well as a feedback form where you can write to us if you have any questions about the show that we did here, this episode that you just listened to. And also on the right side of the website are links to our iTunes page, where you can rate and review us, our Twitter page, where you can follow us, and our Facebook page, where you can like us. And all those ways help you stay up to date on the show. So that's about it, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We'll have an update about the podcast awards in about a week from now. And we'll be back soon with another episode. We'll discuss the latest movie developments and a whole lot more. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Mike Antonio. See you next time for episode 213. Bye-bye. See ya. Peace.